This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Law School Show. I'm Jake Clark, and joining me today is Matt Scrivens, head of legal experience at Good Lawyer, a very interesting company that is aiming to change the way we experience legal practice, both as clients and as lawyers. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Excited to be here. Hi, it's a pleasure. You're coming in from uh, from Calgary, right? Where Good Lawyer is based? That's correct. Yeah, our headquarters are based here. We have a bit of a distributed team across the country. So people in Vancouver, some uh, one in Toronto, but we're kind of consolidating around Calgary there. Obviously, during COVID, when everybody was remote, it was one thing, but there is still some advantages to having people in the same space. So uh, yeah, and it's uh, finally turning spring here. So nice and sunny today. I'm glad you mentioned COVID there because... Obviously, the pandemic has been a huge factor in thinking about how we organize ourselves around practice. And Good Lawyer has a very interesting attitude to that. And I would like you to, um, if that's viable, I'd like it. I uh, can't speak today. It's a lovely day here as well. I think I got too much vitamin D. I've been inside <laughs> for eight months in Ottawa. I feel you. So um, if uh, you'd be able to give us a quick pitch, sort of tell us, those who are not familiar with Good Lawyer, kind of what uh, the organization's about. Absolutely. So, and I, I should be in fine form. I just got back from a startup conference. So I've been uh, talking all week. And if my voice sounds a little hoarse, that's that's the reason why. But uh, essentially, we are a platform. So we are not a law firm. We are a platform that connects independent lawyers to entrepreneurs, founders, and business owners across Canada. And essentially, what that means is we are a two-sided marketplace. The lawyers come in. They're independent contractors. They join the platform to uh, receive jobs and leads for clients. And what our job is, is that we really curate that experience for the client. So clients come in and oftentimes, especially when they're just getting going with a company or whether they've been in business for 10 years, they may not always know exactly what they need. So they know they have a legal problem, but they're not entirely sure what that is. And we really engage with them to figure that out. And then we have this distributed network of lawyers across Canada with different specialties. So we can make that right match to the client. We kind of get in there, make sure that, uh, and we do this through various means, which I can uh, certainly jump into. But we are, our goal is to make that best match for them, to put them in touch with the lawyer who can help them out. Because frankly, if you don't have a little bit of legal experience, sometimes it's difficult just finding who you need. So I could talk forever on that, but that's uh, in a nutshell is what we're doing. Well, I think when we first met, we talked about this a bit because you mentioned, and this is a difference that I wasn't aware of, uh, the difference between the service Good Lawyer provides and something like a specialized job board. Right. And that's a very valuable distinction. At least it was for me. I'm sort of wondering if you'd be able to explore that a bit. Absolutely. So we kind of started out that way. Like the very initial iteration of Good Lawyer was almost like eBay, but for law. And that was disastrous. And the reason is, is that what that creates almost inevitably is a race to the bottom. And that's certainly not what we are trying to do. So what we're really after is we want to make sure that we're, we, we call it value pricing. So we want to make sure that we're not a low cost service by any stretch, but we are certainly trying to hit that line between making sure that the lawyers are compensated fairly for the, the very valuable services that they are providing, while at the same time passing on to the clients prices that they can afford, especially in their uh, initial days when they're just getting going with their company. Because oftentimes, especially if you get into you know the bigger law firms, the 
the prices that are charged can be prohibitively expensive. And a lot of entrepreneurs and founders forego their legal kind of requirements for quite a while, and that can get them in trouble down the road. So what we're uh, really, in essence, how we do that is to, by two primary ways. First is that we, uh, much like Airbnb, again, we're a platform sort of like them, you know, uh, it, you know, obviously in a very different field, but we, in the same way that they've cut out the hotel, we're trying to cut out the law firm in the sense that a lot of that overhead and those prices come because of the high overhead associated with law firms. And again, you only need to watch a couple episodes of Suits to see the fancy offices and all the artwork and all, and it looks great, you know, but oftentimes that's not what the client actually cares about. And, you know, maybe that was different back in the day, but uh, they don't really care if they're signing a document in a fancy boardroom anymore and, and would frankly rather not pay for that. The second way is that we have upfront fixed prices for most of our services. So what that means is, and our promise to the clients is that you're going to come in and we are going to give you a quote before we begin any work so that the clients will always know upfront what they're going to pay. So one of the biggest issues, and I have a hundred stories to reiterate this point, but one of the biggest issues is especially with founders and entrepreneurs, again, and business owners, is how much is this going to cost? And the traditional legal system uh, with the billable hour and everything else has said, well, I'll tell you at the end. And there's not too many other professions or industries that can get away with that, but lawyers have for a while. But we're just beginning to see a lot more pushback where people want price certainty just so that they can make sure that they budget and this is you know money well spent on their end. I think that's a very interesting distinction there. That helps a lot, certainly the comparison to Airbnb. And I do think that that does raise an interesting question about the relationship between the client and the law firm. Now, you uh, run the podcast for Good Lawyer, and this is a common topic on there, right. is the difference in relationship between the client at the firm, the lawyer, sort of these often trilateral relationships that can be uh, complex and continue to evolve. I appreciate that I'm asking a question uh, along a certain line of bias here, but what do you see as most important to adapt in that? Or what's sort of the big difference here when we're working with something like the lawyer versus a major firm? What's the sort of exp experiential aspect there? For sure, for sure. So I mean, again, and uh, I have no issue with law firms. I want to make that clear. I do think that they serve a purpose and there's, there's great lawyers who work at law firms. You know, I used to work in one of myself and the value there is, is pretty clear. The thing is, is that it comes with a fairly big price tag, right? Like it's not uncommon, especially, you know, in the bigger centers like Toronto, uh, Vancouver, Calgary, that you will be seeing these five, six, seven hundred dollar an hour billable rates. And again, that's fine, but that's a lot of money for a lot of people. And what we've been able to leverage is not everybody works well within the kind of a big or even medium firm structure. Like, you know, there's a lot of benefits that come to working at a law firm. Like you walk in, you're going to get clients. You don't have to go out, find them or your own yourself. You're going to get a, an assistant. You're going to have access to their library, to whatever subscriptions they have, all of these types of things. So there's a lot of benefits. And, and again, I don't think this is coming as any surprise, but traditionally lawyers are not the most uh, risk taking or that's not, you know, the reputation that we typically have. In fact, it's quite the opposite, that we're fairly risk averse as a profession. And fair enough, that's what a large part of the value that we do as lawyers is say, hey, here's where things can go wrong or like pointing out things uh, that could potentially go off the rails and informing your client and helping them deal with with those situations as well as possible. So, you know, the the prospect of starting your own firm is fairly daunting. And I when, when I left the big firm that I was working at, uh, I looked at that brief briefly, but I was like, oh man, there is a lot going on. So essentially you have to choose between going to a law firm, which 
comes with it a lot of resources, but what also comes with it is typically a fairly high billable hour requirement. Like you have to hit certain targets and that typically for medium and big size firms often results in, you know, consistent 60 hour weeks where you're, you know, you're working weekends, you're canceling events, all of those types of things. So it comes with it a, pre- a fairly high cost. On the other side, if you want to go out and be a solo or be a member of a small firm, well, now you're not only are you being a lawyer, but you're having to run the business. So you're working 40, 50 hours a week as a lawyer and then 25 more on the weekend doing all the admin hiring, you know, dealing with your rent, landlord stuff. And that's really, on. and my job at Good Lawyer is uh, essentially to manage the lawyer side of the network and, uh, you know, help build the infrastructure around that. And that, if I had to, and again, I'm always using analogies, which I don't, like they're not fully accurate. I want to make that clear, but just uh, as a, a way to easily understand what we're trying to do, like on the lawyer side, what we're trying to do is help lawyers out with the business of law. And the the analogy I use is we want to almost be like Shopify in the sense that if you ever wanted to start an online store, yes, you can absolutely go out there and design a bespoke website, do everything from scratch, build your own, you know, payment processor and all of that. But my question to you would be like, why? Because you can literally go to Shopify and they already have all of these plugins and everything else for you. So unless you need something super complex, you can just plug and play. And that's a beautiful thing. And we've seen an explosion in e-commerce, uh, you know, their their stock price taking hits recently uh, aside, you know, but we've seen explosions in this because it's now it's easy to do it. Like you can start a t-shirt company in, in an afternoon where before that would take, you know, weeks and even months of, of prep. And that's what we want to do for lawyers in a lot of ways is we want to be the plug and play option for the solo and, and independence. So, you know, they don't have to go out and go through that laundry list of things. Of course, they're still going to need their insurance and, you know, if they want to set up a trust account, all those types of things. But, you know, we want to help them out with everything else and that will allow them to do what they do best and probably what they enjoy the most. And that's dealing with clients and helping them out and delivering value. This sounds to me like a very modular relationship. So something that is kind of customizable within a certain template. And one aspect of that that is noteworthy, and we were discussing this a bit, uh, is the possibility because law is obviously a very defined discipline. And with this kind of modularity, there is a very large and very interesting discussion about the decentralization of legal practice relatively. And in some respects, another centralization, a sort of a realignment there. You've also spoken about this on the podcast. We're, we're covering a lot of the podcast topics today because I think it's a very <laughs> interesting show to listen to it, but also I appreciate that. very relevant in terms of the discussion. And I'm kind of wondering if... For example, you're a young lawyer who's either been in practice for a little bit or is is going into articles and is considering making use of this service. What would you tell them first off, apart from what we've just heard? Like they want to know, okay, I could make a go at this. How can I make a like a medium term plan out of this? How can I sort of build practice based on that. Right. And and so that's a fantastic question. And so first off, right now, I'll be fully upfront. We typically don't let lawyers on the platform that don't have at least three years experience. And that's not a them thing. That's an us thing. We just don't have the infrastructure built yet to help facilitate that transition. That's certainly somewhere that we want to go. We want to be able to go to law schools and be able to recruit right from there and have a program where they can build themselves into whatever type of lawyer that they want to be. That's a long-term plan and have, and we're already starting that. We've had, uh, in fact, we're right now working with a couple of professors who are going to help us out with a, a startup law, law curriculum. They are going to help lawyers build that practice and build those skill sets because it's a little bit different from corporate law and it has a few nuances there. But that being said, if uh, like you know that aside to answer your question, you know when you come to Good Lawyer right now, uh, again we we're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna send you the leads, we're gonna do the marketing for you, we are gonna help with the onboarding, meaning that we're gonna make sure that they sign a limited scope retainer uh, so that by the time when they get 
get to you, you can talk to them right away and, and start that advice immediately. You don't have to delay that with the kind of awkward onboarding process. We're going to help, uh, like I said before, we're going to help with that match to make sure the client that's coming to you is actually someone that is, is they're going to speak to you about something that you can handle and that you're confident in. At the end, we're going to help with the billing. If they don't pay, we are the ones that are going to go chase them down. And then we have a whole bunch of other resources uh, on the end, uh, such as like, you know, we have a relationship with Thomson Reuters for uh, some of their products that these lawyers can tap into. So like, you know, because what they don't have, again, oftentimes, especially if you're just starting out, you don't have that precedent library. When you work at a firm, you're not like lawyers don't just write everything from scratch. That would be completely inefficient. But what you need is those quality documents that you can rely on and trust on to, to do your job effectively. So we help with that. We help with a whole bunch of different, we just brought on actually one of our first lawyers who really went big on our platform and we're, you know, relatively speaking, but like, you know, or they were making real money uh, on over our platform. We brought her on as our lawyer in residence also to help us with the, uh, to help lawyers individually to get going in their practice and, and how they can set up their practice over good lawyer to be as effective as possible. And also to tell us, cause like so I only worked at a big firm. I never worked as a solo practitioner and, I, and I've never practiced as a lawyer over good lawyer. I'm on the business end. So I don't like, I think I know, and I get a lot of feedback. I talk to a lot of, of the lawyers, uh, you know, consistently over the platform, but I don't know. I don't have that day-to-day experience. And her name's Pauline. She's been fantastic with us so far, but I can go and ask her. I'm like, Hey, is this, I think this is a genius idea that I just had. And, uh, you know, save the accolades for a second till I tell you, and I'll, I'll tell her, and then she'll tell me why it's a terrible idea. You know, and I, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but just being able to get that direct feedback, uh, so that we can make those lawyers experiences as good and as smooth as possible. Now I will say we still have a long ways to go. We are very laws complex law is hard so we have not completely cracked that code but we are certainly making strides every day and our focus is very much to be able to again have this plug and play solution for lawyers that is going to make their lives way easier so i I find it interesting there's a significant trend of topics perhaps this might be the last big topic from the podcast but it does come into something of the story here there's a significant trend of people moving away from for example big law practice to explore more I mean, it's the Good Lawyer podcast. It's going to be through Good Lawyer. Slight bias in that picture. But this is also, it's part of a trend that's been commented on for some time now, both in relation to like legal practice, but also transition to JD advantage positions. And I would kind of like to ask firstly, like your personal story, if you're comfortable sharing it, how you came to Good Lawyer, and if there's any sort of uh, commonality there that you see with uh, some of the other people who come to use the practice, but also sort of what you make of that trend going forward, like sort of what hints you take from that. Absolutely. So uh, maybe I'll just start with the second part of that question, just because it's top of mind here. But what we have seen, and this came as quite a bit of a surprise to me, is when I first joined Good Lawyer, I thought that building there's all, so whenever you build a platform, and this is kind of getting into the startup game here. But whether that's you know Uber, Airbnb, Skip the Dish, whatever, you always are going to have a bit of a chicken and the egg problem, right? In the sense that what side of the platform do you build first? Because you know if you don't have clients, what's the incentive of uh, lawyers signing up for? this. And if you don't have lawyers, why would clients come to your platform, right? So you almost have to choose a side first. And what we did is we chose the lawyer side and we literally almost had like, you know, a roster where we're 
like going province by province saying, hey, we need, you know, an employment lawyer here. We need an IP lawyer there. We need whatever. And going through that. And we built out our, our lawyer platform. And my big concern coming on was I wasn't sure lawyers were going to get this, what we were trying to do. Like we are kind of trained very early on in law school. Like, you know, here's how the system works. And, you know, it's you find a firm, you get your billable hour goes up every year and, and kind of away you go. And I was concerned that lawyers would just be like, you know what? I don't know what is what is my incentive to join this this platform. But thankfully, I was quite wrong, and our message really started resonating with lawyers. That I think also because you know we, as you've mentioned on our, our podcast, we are uh, we have been a little bit critical of the system and of big law in the past, and uh, just a touch. Yes, I know. Uh, and you know one of the one of the things is is like it's pretty clear that it doesn't always work well for clients. Like, and again, it gets back to that access to justice and the high uh, billable hours and all of those things and high prices. But what I didn't quite understand, even though I lived this experience myself, was how little this works for lawyers too. And so what we have really benefited is that there have been a ton of lawyers who have worked at big firms, who have worked in these specialized boutique firms, uh, you know, for many years that bring with them a wealth of experience and said, you know what, I I don't really want to be a partner here or continue on. And they've left and started their own shops. And we have been able to, we've been extremely fortunate that we have been able to pick up a lot of these lawyers who I didn't think would give me the time of day, frankly, but you know, uh, like I said, thankfully I was wrong. And so that has brought a wealth of experience onto the platform where all of a sudden we're able to take on files that I didn't think we'd be able to touch for four or five years out from now. So that's been incredible. And I think just, again, like I'm not, I, I am in no way really against big firms. I think they have their place. I think they have their purpose. And I think there's some lawyers who genuinely, that's what they want to do and all the power to them. But I know for a lot of people, that is like, it's a tough job. You know, you're sitting there, like I said, for 50, 60 hours a week, consistently doing hard work. It's not like you're just sort of reviewing whatever, like you're, you're digging into things, you're writing, you know, memos on very nuanced legal issues and things like that. And that's, that can take a toll. And, you know, you look into the, you know, the mental health stats of, of lawyers uh, in Canada and and frankly, really anywhere uh, in North America, and they're not great. You know, and there's a reason for it is that this this system is not overly friendly to many lawyers who are currently working at these big firms. And, you know, without getting too much into this and women in particular, and that's one of the first people that we were able to really recruit is moms that, you know, once they started having families, those 60 hour weeks became increasingly difficult and they needed something more flexible. And don't get me wrong, we have obviously tons of men on the platform, too. But that was kind of our first sort of like, oh, hey, here's here's some people who might be interested in this in this project. And, uh, you know, just being able to to offer a different option I think is really the exciting part saying, Hey, it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. And then, uh, so, and I'll, maybe I'll stop there before I tell you my personal story. I just see if you have any, uh, any questions about that or if I answered that question correctly. <laughs> well, it, that, no, that's an excellent answer. And it, I, it dovetails with a lot of the reasons that have been given for, you know, moving away from that, which is one ad, upshot of COVID is that it made self-care unavoidable right. as a discourse. I mean, it's unavoidable in that you always wake up with yourself every morning. So if you don't take care of that, it's going eventually have severe repercussions. But that really put that discourse forward because it radically shifted how people work. And I think that shift, at least at present, a lot of these things are, you know, going up and down, was towards a degree of modularity, a degree of results-based focus. And I think a general move away from this sort of 60 to 80 hour week Right. Full, full disclosure, I've never worked in a big law firm. So I've, <laughs> I've just read a lot of things telling people to. The OBA sends emails That's quite smart. regularly on this. And 
I, I find this very interesting. And I think that you've summed up something that is very noteworthy. I think that the thing will continue to evolve in very odd ways. I, I can barely claim to predict what I'm going to eat for dinner tomorrow. So I'm, I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and say that I may not have a beat on the future, but it's helpful to understand these ideas. And that's why I asked earlier about how you describe this to a young lawyer kind of looking to build something, especially someone considering having a family. Yeah, no, exactly. And and I think that that really is our core message is it's like lawyers need to come in all different shapes and sizes. And, and uh, this kind of one size fit all model that we've seen to adapt to uh, over the last 50 years. And actually, this is an interesting point. Again, kind of something I learned through our podcast. And this is a fun part about having a podcast is you get to speak with people that may otherwise not speak with you. You know, I get to, to speak with deans of law schools who are have thought about these issues for decades and things like that and have much more nuanced and uh, informed opinions than I do. But I did not realize that the, the billable hour is a fairly new concept for lawyers. And and this emerged out of essentially lawyers looking at other professions and saying, hey, why aren't we earning as much as doctors, as you know, engineers, things like that. And this, so this was a fairly recent invention that I think goes back to like the 50s kind of thing, you know, like it wasn't that long ago. And so then all of a sudden this model started changing. And what also happened is that law for, lawyers before always came from small firms. Like that was just sort of the way it was, that it was, uh, it was a, a, a cottage industry really in many ways. And what has happened since is obviously lawyers have gotten together and created these partnerships and the, the partnership model. And that is a great thing to an extent, you know, where you're like, hey, you have a different skill set than me. Why don't we team, team up to um, better serve a client? I absolutely agree with that. But what's happening is we're seeing these monster partnerships. And I'm saying that with air quotes because they're corporations, mm-hmm. you know, but, but they've turned into something completely different than what was originally kind of contemplated by this partnership concept and they're they're corporations in all but name and it, but it creates some bad incentives in the sense that because you're in a partnership you actually don't own any of the firm and when you're typically uh you know the firms I worked at when you turn 65 you're you're out like that's it. You have to sell your partnership stake back to the firm and yet you get paid out. But the problem is, is all the decision makers are probably within a decade of retirement, if not closer, right? So their incentive to say, hey, we're going to, instead of paying out the, the proceeds of the firm to each individual person for them to take home, we're going to take part of that and invest in, you know, technology in in a different way of doing things and in, in innovation and all that. And they're saying, why? Why would I invest in that when I'm leaving in a few years? I would just rather take the money. And so you, you run into that. That problem where this the actual structure is prohibiting that innovation from actually happening. Now, there are many who would disagree with me. And, you know, by all means, I'm kind of giving you a simplistic argument here. But that is a, a, one of the core issues with law firms and this current partnership structure that we have. And I do think that what we're going to see is a bit of a pushback to sort of these boutique firms again. Now, again, I don't think the partnership model will die, but I do certainly think that we'll start seeing these kind of more specialized and smaller practices, just, you know, dealing with a few more of these issues and and and, and making sure that that, you know, that flexibility and maybe a bit more attunement to people's circumstances in life than what we've seen for the last 50 years. I think this touches on an interesting topic uh, because this has been phrased quite a few times as a return rather than a revolution to a certain way things were going. And I think this is interesting because I'm very interested in systems thinking. And one interesting reality of that is that smaller organizations, more localized organizations accommodate better to complex systems than larger, heavily structured, more 
pyramidal ones, sort of energy as a feedback loop rather than as a linear progression, which is difficult to chart on statements given to shareholders, for example, but is more effective in some respects, or at least historically is the norm for providing these services. And I think it's very interesting that you pointed out that up until, would you say the 50s was- I believe, yeah. Don't don't quote me on that, but I think that's right. I can't correct that either. So the service-based model was uh, the norm there. And I think this is interesting when we, as we said, when we talk about access to justice, one interesting situation with access to justice, or at least as it's been phrased to me as a law student, is this situation where there are simultaneously too many and too few law graduates. This is also a very distinct Ontario problem as well. I would kind of like to ask you now, I I do want to get into your experience at the firm, but I do want to ask you in relation to this, if there is a sort of movement towards these boutique firms, if this movement is is going to be evenly distributed or this is going to go around certain centers of practice? Yeah, you know, and so you you said something interesting and I, I definitely want to make sure I, I uh, give enough nuance there is that you said back, but I don't think we're going back in the, like, even though I, I say back as well, but I don't think we're going to go back to what it was. I think what we are doing is evolving and what we did is like, there's a bit of a pendulum and I think what the pendulum is going to come back, but it's also going to go a little bit aside in the sense that we have technologies, we have other means, we have more knowledge about this profession uh, now than we ever have. And so I don't think it'll ever look like it ever did, you know, in the fifties or, or prior before like you know and it nor should it like you know i i hope that we can make something better out of that but you touched on the um the problem of uh, too many yet too few lawyers and and it's such an interesting problem because uh one of the if you hear any of good lawyers talks whether uh lawyer facing or client facing is you're going to hear the stat uh and it came from one of the clio reports that 77 percent of legal needs go unmet across north america which is when i first heard that i was you know my eyes did what yours just did they went pretty wide i was like holy smokes so the argument that we have too few lawyers is actually to me a bit of a, a ridiculous one in the sense that it's like no no we don't, what we have is a problem with the way to access those lawyers. And again, getting back to this partnership model and just our current structure in general, that has kind of created that. And there's a many reasons why. And again, that kind of goes back to many of the reasons that good lawyer exists and what were some of the problems that we're trying to solve. Oftentimes people are intimidated by lawyers. They don't know what they don't know. They're not sure where to look. They're not sure what type of lawyer to they need, you know, and all of this. And if you, it's, it's one thing to go to a firm, you'll, you'll, and a well-known firm, you'll be able to find what you're looking for, but typically that comes with high, again, that high bill at the end of the day that they're that you don't know. Like literally I was talking to a client the other day and they said that they were quoted between $2,500 and $50,000. That is what the, that's what the firm said to them. And it, as a business owner, you're like, uh, yeah, that's a pretty wide area there. Uh, could we not do a little bit better? And t- you know, and exactly, you know, it's, it, and, and this is sort of, I, I'm not going to call lawyers lazy because lawyers are not lazy, but the way that we think about how to scope and to quote and to things, things like this, we kind of sometimes can have a bit of an attitude of we're the experts we know what we're doing. And if you want our services, I, you know, let us do our thing and we'll let you know at the end. And again, that just isn't how things work anymore. People get annoyed by that. I can't tell you how many clients good lawyers picked up because they went to another law firm, had a terrible experience, got an answer like that. And they're saying, "I no, that, screw that. I would like, I'll, I'll try anything else, right? And so what I think is, and we're already seeing it, is just, there's going to be a pretty big pushback from clients who are going to be looking for a different experience. And I'll say this much, is that those lawyers who understand that and can position themselves, whether on good lawyer or through an independent practice or even at a firm, they are going to be the winners in the next 10 
to 15 years. I don't think like, you know, there's always been this kind of AI debate about our lawyers going away or they're too many. No, law is inherently a human institution. And yes, AI can certainly help on some things. And maybe in 100 years, you know, it might be completely different. Again, like you said earlier, I don't have a crystal ball. But in the near term, people don't want to get punched out a document that does what they need. They want that trusted advisor relationship that they can go to and talk problems through and get that trust going and so that they can reap the benefits of their knowledge. Like this is one of the things that especially in the business law context, which is where obviously I live, that lawyers can do is like, even if it's a seasoned entrepreneur, let's say raising money, they've probably been through three, maybe four fundraising rounds in their entire career. Whereas a lawyer, if you're in that space, you may have done hundreds, maybe even thousands of these. So yes, you aren't coming from the same perspective, but lawyers have such valuable information just based off of reps. And all of that can be completely delivered to the client. So I, again, I don't think there's too many lawyers. I just think the way that we have traditionally packaged them is the problem and uh, learning some innovative ways of, of getting those uh, that access to the clients. There's going to be a lot of different ways winners coming up in the next few years here for sure. And, you know, one thing that one logic that informs that will always be the logic of efficiency, right? Which organization is able to right. survive. And there's one aspect of large firm work is this kind of sense of fractal inefficiency. And I think that makes an interesting question with decentralization, right. because one very common debate with decentralization is how blockchain factors into it. This relates to something, but it's a very weird loop I go on here. The thing with blockchain, right, as I think we all know, is that adding every new piece to it, or at least with something like cryptocurrency, makes it less efficient because you need more processing power to right. figure out what it is essentially to continue the main advantage, which is unfalsifiability. With that, that is indisputably more decentralized, provided you have access to computing power, but has a very distinct demand that makes centralization kind of an inherent thing, which is also that demand for computing power. So here's kind of my question about the good lawyer right. future. Say we get to a period where more decentralized practice through organizations like Good Lawyer, perhaps like something organized by a law society, perhaps through companies, you have a Shopify-like model for it. What's the Amazon of that model? What's something that's a bit more of a centralizing force? Is that likely to happen? Is it likely to happen that these things could in fact end up consolidating in that way? Well, and again, I want to be clear when I say, and that's why that analogy was imperfect, because I, I would almost say that in some ways we we are actually the Amazon might be a better way of conceptualizing the entire company of, of Good Lawyer uh, in the sense that we could very well turn out to be a centralizing force. And we recognize that, you know, in the sense that let's say if our, we build this thing and it goes huge. And then we like, we like Amazon essentially is like, if you want to sell goods online, you have like a very few, you have Shopify or you have Amazon and Amazon obviously is the marketplace and we are building that marketplace. Right. So we recognize that even though we're sort of pulling at two ends of the string here in the one sense where we are very much on that decentralization train, where we're kind of, I guess, challenging the unchallenged challenged thoughts about big law firms or medium-sized law firms or organizing law firms in the way that they've been organized and saying, hey, you don't need to do that. You can be an independent and a solo and and work through a system like this on your terms and you know and and everything is great. On the other side of it, if we all of a sudden start aggregating all the clients and the clients start coming only, you know, or a good lawyer becomes a very trusted brand and all of that, well, that kind of creates a centralization aspect to it as well. And we've had, we've already had deep conversations about 
this internally because as we know, with centralization comes power and with power can sometimes come abuse of power, right? And that's something I'm uh, very interested in in blockchain and crypto and these types of things. And one of the reasons is, is that I'm, uh, I have, let's just say, some skepticism about some of the centralizations of power, especially in the past. And if you read a history book, like, you know, you'll, you'll quickly understand what I'm talking about. I, I don't love the top down method, not only from a, a position of equity, but also it just doesn't isn't a very efficient model oftentimes, right? So uh, we certainly have to be cognizant of that. And that's Honestly, I won't. I won't lie to you. That's a problem that will need to be solved a little bit further on down the road. We have enough fires as it is without having to think overly philosophically about what if we're, you know, the uh, one or two players in the world. But yeah, no, it's it's always going to be. You know, it seems like systems from an efficiency perspective do want to be centralized a little bit. And we were talking before this show, the, and I was complaining about how Canada has an absolutely arcane incorporation process in the sense that I can't even quote a price to a client without having to dig into each province's individual methods. And some aren't online. Some of you literally still have to deliver papers. And I'm like, why can't we just have one system that does this and it integrates with one another and enough of this? This is like, this is creating unnecessary inefficiencies. So there is certainly an argument to be made about having those efficiencies under one centralized model. However, you do always need to be cognizant about what the ultimate end is to that. And at the end of the day, what part of our mission is to give that power back to the lawyers as well as to the clients. But again, my my job's on the lawyer side. The lawyers say, hey, you don't need that you don't need to be uh, practicing in a big firm and all of that. So we don't want to become the new dictators either, if that makes sense. Always good to hear. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I've never had a conversation with someone going, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be the dirigiste of this one. I think that would actually be pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. I take your point. It's one of those things with the evolution of organizations as organisms too, which I think is a very interesting discussion. That's another thing I saw a bit during COVID because the ability to survive system shock, right, is a big one. Absolutely. And apropos of being in these things, I'd like to talk about your personal journey a bit and see if you have any, as I'm going to do a bit of a William Burroughs voice, advice for young people. (laughs) You yourself are fairly young, so I'm going to go and say that, you know, proximity is going to (laughs) help. You've made the journey, as you said, from corporate law, business law, to working at Good Lawyer. And I'd like to ask you about that and about how that personal experience affects your outlook on the situation and sort of if that's created any core reducible lessons that you'd want to go forth into the world, assuming we haven't already touched on them. Yeah, no, absolutely. So my journey was that, you know, I went to law school essentially on a whim. I uh, I played fairly competitive sports growing up uh, until I was about 25, worked for a couple of years, and then uh, kind of had that, okay, what am I doing moment? And, uh, you know, kind of went, and I didn't really have many great ideas at the at that point. I, I wasn't, uh, there wasn't any one that was really sticking out for me. And, you know, I'm like, well, I'm not going to be a doctor. That takes too long. Kind of went through all that. I don't want to be an accountant. Okay. All these different things. And I said, well, why not law? school. Okay. So I said, I'll kind of on the whim wrote, wrote the LSAT and applied and said, you know, let's see what happens. And, uh, you know, obviously I got in and then got a job at a very reputable firm in my first year. And, you know, it kind of seemed like everything was falling into place. And that was actually until my summer there in the summer, anyone who's worked at a, a firm, typically what happens is they'll bring you in for a summer while you're still in law school. And I remember getting in there and they go easy on you. Like it is, they're very nice to you as summer students. They don't do, they don't let you touch any of the important stuff and you can go home at five o'clock and all of that kind of stuff. But I saw the type of work that corporate lawyers do. And I said, "Uh Oh, I don't know if I'm, you know, if I'm feeling this. And I said, okay, well, 
you know, too late, you're in law school, you got a great job lined up, all of this. So give it a shot. And I, and I genuinely did. I, uh, I gave it an honest, a very honest effort. Uh, my articling year was one of the toughest of my life, to be honest. Uh, it was very demanding, you know, very long weeks, a lot of canceled events and all that. But what I did and what we've kind of touched on earlier in this conversation is I looked at the model. I said, okay, so where's this going? Like, how does this actually work? And believe it or not, I, they don't teach us in law school. I said, how does a law firm work? So I sat down and I kind of educated myself on that. And I'm like, okay, so you work seven, eight years as a associate. And if you're lucky, <laughs> you know, they offer to bring you on as a partner, but not a real partner. They call them income partners. That's the first level. So essentially, and I, I'm, I'm being a little bit disingenuous here, but like essentially that's like a glorified associate you're a partner but you're not at the big table you're not actually helping make any of the decisions and you don't get a cut you're still on a salary you don't get a cut of the firm proceeds after if you still do well for another two or three years then you make it into income partner and income partner you have to spend a lot of money to buy into the system and then that's when you actually start getting you know, paid out as part of the proceeds of the firm. And again, there's nothing wrong with this model inherently. I have no issues with it, but I looked at that and said, okay, so I pretty much have to commit to working extremely hard for the next 10 years was something that honestly wasn't really resonating with me. I, I like, I really appreciated the work I was doing. I knew it was important, all of that, but it like, I, you know, I'm like, I just don't think frankly, I want to do this for the next decade and, and beyond. And I said, well, and, and also like just the buy-in alone was fairly expensive. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall and it took uh, quite a bit of thinking about before I actually pulled the trigger, but I had an opportunity to work in-house for a bit. But luckily what happened with me is I met a couple people in law school and at the firm. And I will say this, if there's People, when they ask me, hey, should I article at a big firm or like, you know, in retrospect, and I still say yes. It was one of the most difficult years of my life. No question about it. It was extremely intense. Uh, and then I, you know, I, I worked there for a bit as an associate. But what it do, what it did for me is it taught me that like when you think like there was a lot of negatives, but the, the really big positives out of it is it taught me that you have more gas in the tank than you think. When you think you're tired, you're not even beginning to get tired and you learn to work at a very high level for consistent time. And also you are around some very intelligent type A, highly driven people. And it gives you a pretty good indication. I don't care what field you choose, but if you want to be elite in anything, you can kind of see around you what it's going to take. And that was one of the key lessons I took away from that. It was just how hard that you had to work and how focused you had to be to be an elite lawyer. And this again is a principle that applies anywhere. I don't care if it's starting your own business or anything. And now there's different levels. Now, you, like I said, you can be a very, very good lawyer and work 40 hours a week, you know, but the ones that are, you know, killing it at the firms and everything like that, they're, they're working. You know, they work a lot. And so that was the one thing. And then, like I said, I met a couple of people there, including our founder and CEO, Brett Colvin, who uh, had, a, had a bit of a different experience than me, but similar on a lot of levels. And he had this idea for Good Lawyer, even back in law school. And so he finally decided to start it. I was part of the original team that, that went out, but then I decided to go in-house for a couple of years, knowing that uh, I would likely come back if that if it was going to work out. I did that for a time and then came back in. And so I was very fortunate to meet a couple of the people on the team. And I've always been attracted to startup. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family and things like that. So I've always been attracted to running your own business and, and everything like that. But the lessons that I learned working at those firms have transferred a ton just as far as like your ability to grind, your ability to deal with adversity, your ability to think critically, to think analytically. All of these things are invaluable tools that can be applied in no matter what you do. So that's kind of how I got there. And then obviously being a lawyer, that's how I uh, 
kind of got onto our lawyer side of the platform and why I'm in the position that I am. And frankly, it's, it's amazing. I have a lot more compassion for lawyers too. Like I know that they work hard. I know that they are really wanting to do the best for their clients that they take it personally if they get a bad review uh, or if they, you know, don't meet the standards that they hold for themselves. And uh, I love that about our profession. Like the, at the end of the day, being a lawyer is a noble work and it needs to be done. These are the rules of our society at a very fundamental level. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but like it does, it does in very meaningful ways is the fabric of, you know, our society. And, you know, I, I wanted to be proud of being a lawyer and all of that. And, and thankfully good lawyer has, has given me that opportunity. I'm glad of that context. It, I, appreciating this is somewhat asking the cat to guard the canary. How do you feel about the, the notion? Cause I can see very easily that this is extending the gig economy into law. Do you feel that's an accurate statement? And if so, sort of what do you make of that as a value judgment? Yeah. So the the one nuance I would say is that when we say the gig economy, you know, we're kind of thinking of you know, working off of, uh, you know, Fiverr or like Uber or something like that, which is totally fine. This is a bit more involved is, is the differentiating factor. And the reality is, is that lawyers, you know, probably make a lot less than people actually think lawyers do once you actually get out there. You know, it's a little bit startling actually, but uh, like, unless you're at a big firm and don't get me wrong, there are some that make a ton of money for your average lawyer. They make a little bit less than you may think when you're like, Oh, this is a lawyer. They probably make a lot of money. But that being said is that we need to provide enough consistent work and money at the end of the day that it makes it meaningful for them to stick around because otherwise they're just going to ignore us. They can just go and build their own private practice or join a firm or do whatever. So we need to be a bit more involved than maybe your traditional, you know, gig economy where, you know, people come and go and it doesn't really matter so much. The other thing is, is that we also encourage our clients to develop relationships with the lawyer. And the reason is, is that, you know, when I order an Uber, I don't really care who it is. I care that I get from here to there, right? And with it for a reasonable when I work with a lawyer or if I go to a doctor, I very much care who that is, right? And so this is a trusted relationship. So we're building for the long term. We understand that if we don't consider like, you know, and this is something that we've uh, actually done in the past where sometimes you optimize a little bit too much for the clients without thinking about the third order effects of what that's going to mean for the lawyers. And then all of a sudden you have a bit of a mess that you have to clean up. And so we really have to walk a bit of a tight line saying, yeah, we want to make sure this is an incredible value for the clients, but also so that this is going to be meaningful enough for the lawyers that it works for them long term. We don't want people leaving. We want them to stay. And so there's a million different ways that we go about that. But one of the the biggest ones is just being that open, that transparent and making sure that we're thinking about their best interests as well. We are a two-sided marketplace. So it's a bit more involved than just like maybe your traditional gig economy. And But that being said, it very much is. And here's the benefits of, of the gig economy is that I don't, uh, you're not, my employee, I can't tell you that you can't take that vacation or you have to take this file. Lawyers have the option to shut off their availability whenever they want. And I'm, you know, and like, obviously I would, I appreciate the heads up and all of that, but they still can have that, that final say on what they're taking on. And I think that get, that that's really an empowering feature for the lawyers. Do you think that this would create in, again, sort of always be wary of forecasting, right? But is the idea here to create something of a, a community of skill that has that more direct relationship? And do you think that as we question the efficacy of organizations that we're going to trend towards that recognition, especially for skilled professions like like lawyers, like accountants, like tradespeople? So the question is, uh, like, is this a trend that we're seeing for uh, for in other industries? Yeah, I would say, a, a, do you see a trend towards communities of skill kind of forming through these I more see. direct relationships that way? Like, say, like a skilled tradesmen's union. 
hundred percent. And again, this is again one of those interesting sort of juxtapositions or dichotomies or whatever you want, whatever word you want to use, where there's a, both forces of centralization and decentralization happening all at once. So, and and I think a great example of of this, if I'm understanding the question correctly, is you look at accounting firms that are really starting to expand their reach into law into business consulting, into all these different services under one roof that can help organizations run their business. So you need to, they're a one-stop shop now. So in that sense, yeah, we're starting to see these communities coalesce. And I mean, for anyone who's dealt with it before, the, the relationship between lawyers and accountants in particular are, is quite strong. Like it's kind of two sides of the same coin, right? So you see all these opportunities to bring these types of new organizations together. Now, there is certainly some regulatory issues around all of this, right? And, and so the Law Society do get into, I don't want to say in the way, but they're, they do have a say in this. But you know, you, if you look at Australia or places like this, I mean, they have law firms that are publicly traded and, and you can do all this and you can have non-lawyers who own law firms and things like this. So it's a very different model. We see it in other jurisdictions and it works. It works. And that, there's always pros and cons to everything there. But 100% do I see whenever there's efficiencies to be had and that can solve problems on both sides, that's pretty hard to say no to forever. You know, there, eventually there's going to be someone who's going to be willing to challenge the system and say, hey, why don't we do it like this? Good lawyers very much in that. Don't get me wrong. We do our very best to play very nicely with the law societies. We're in no way trying to disrespect them or uh, circumvent the rules or anything like that. But we're saying, hey, like, you know, we're going to do it like this. Here's what we're up to. And the reason why is it comes back down to that fundamental thing that we've brought up a few times is, hey, this is a better way for access to justice and frankly, access to other professional services or whatever that the, the you know clients may need as well. I'm still trying to wrap my head on the fact that you can buy shares in a law firm on the ASX. Yeah. Actually, given, given what they did with the Murray Darling, actually, I shouldn't be too surprised at that one. <laughs> you can buy water rights on that. Uh, yeah, there you go. And, and I'm not going to defend everything there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly a difference. But again, it's not. They all have their pros and cons, but uh, it's certainly interesting to look into to say, hey, even our partnership model is not like settled in every part of the world. There are different structures out there and there's different countries that are in the Commonwealth, you know, even like mm -hmm. they use common law that do this very differently than what we do in Canada and the United States. Now, in speaking of broadening your perspective, Matt, you've been very generous with your time. As we conclude here, I would like to ask if people are looking to keep more abreast of these findings, if people are looking to find out more about good lawyer or about decentralized law or about law and tech at large, you obviously have a podcast. Uh, are there any sources of information that you would recommend? And is there an episode of the podcast, a first listen to help people orient themselves? That's a great question. So yeah, the podcast, you can just uh, search it on any of uh, your common apps there. It's called The Future of Law by Good Lawyer. We're, like I said, we're, we're a bit on hiatus at the moment just because things have picked up in the business end and uh, just uh, limited resources, but we're hoping to get that uh, going here again soon. Honestly, if for students, there's actually one, there's a few that I would recommend. We have the Dean of UFC on a couple times, Dean Holloway. I would highly recommend either one of his episodes. He is just such a deep and frankly eloquent thinker. He tells his story in the first one, and then we get a bit more into like how law schools are structured in the second one. And both of them, frankly, blew my mind. And uh, I learned a lot from that. Mitch Kowalski, which is, uh, he's a professor at UFC as well as he has been at U of T, I think in the past or somewhere in Ontario. So he's been around. He's another great one. And then, but from a, a student perspective, for someone who came through law school, but then used their law degree in a different manner, manner uh, Thomas Walker is, uh, and I, I can send you the links to these if needed, but he just a fantastic story of someone who is now a CEO of a fairly large and growing company, but like, you know, started as a law student and, you know, all of those are, 
are, are fantastic. But you can check them out if you go to the Good Lawyers website and to the resource page. There, all the links are there. And honestly. Other than that, I would say start plugging into LinkedIn. Start looking for, there's a lot of amazing thought leaders out there that uh, Aaron Bear is another one that comes up. He posts all the time. Uh, he has actually a really interesting organization called 4L, which is training for lawyers after they have graduated because you certainly don't learn everything you're going to need to know in law school. He posts all the time on LinkedIn. Fantastic thought leader there. And yeah, and I mean, the thread keeps going and I could go on for days, so I'll stop there. But uh, go through the podcast list or everyone that's been on, frankly, has some pretty incredible things to say and yeah that's aaron baird you said bear yeah uh b-e-a-r i believe no b-a-e-r i mean let me double check that <laughs> i got i just have one question before we close sure, off your of podcast course. is a cover photo which is an uh, a painting of a fellow it appears to be from like uh, the georgian period with a cyberkinetic eye who's the fellow in that painting do you know and I, his name is escaping me right now. Uh, <laughs> he is the guy, though. He wrote a treaty uh, on, he essentially invented common law. Uh, so he wrote uh, several books back in the 1700s, and his name is escaping me. It's Lord something. Lord Blackwell? Blackwell? Is that it? Blackstone? It's either Blackstone or Blackwell. Yeah, that's uh, and I should know that off the top of my head. It's sun it's Sunday, so I'm uh, a little foggy. Clearly, anyway, really interesting guy, and he had this great picture. So we kind of turned it into that Terminator. I I didn't do this, obviously. Our uh, people much more artistic than I did uh, took that on, but it's a pretty cool little uh, logo. Yeah, Lord Blackstone. Blackstone, right. thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interesting guy. Uh, you know, really laid the foundations for a lot of the systems that we still operate in, and uh, so it seemed like an appropriate uh, guy to throw on there. One of the one of the most influential people in the common law. Probably. Yeah, exactly. 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 And again, I, I apologize for forgetting his name there. <laughs> oh, cheers. Look him up. Yeah. All right, everybody. Matt, it was lovely to have you. Thank you very much for uh, giving us the inside line on Good Lawyer. And best of luck with the podcast. Hey, I really appreciated it. It was a lot of fun. I'm usually on the other end of these, so it's uh, fun to change it up for an episode. Glad to be of help. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Cheers. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.